Hey. hey, you're listening to Avid Research. Avid Research. Avid Research. An Australian STEM podcast where we answer the questions you never quite got around to asking. Welcome back to the show team. My name's Amelia and today we have two amazing guests on the show who are incredibly brave, wonderful human beings because they are here to undertake a new kind of experiment here at Avid Research where we're going to be doing a bit of a multi-generational chat about careers and STEM and all sorts of different things. This could go any which way, anything could happen. Firstly, I'd like to welcome Chris Finch, who is Emily's mum. Welcome to the show, Chris. Thank you. Hello. And I'd also like to introduce Dr. Emily, who is a Beamline scientist. Welcome, Dr. Emily. Thanks, Amelia. Happy to be here. (laughs) Awesome. So we might start with Chris. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, obviously, I'm Emily's mum. And at present, um, I'm retired as of last year. Congratulations. Thank you. I'm really enjoying my retirement too. I've had a few career changes in my life, but the most recent ones, I've worked with people with disability as well as the elderly with disability and uh, mental issues. And yeah, it was challenging, but it was very rewarding. And um, yeah, I really loved it. Fantastic. So a little bit of that kind of caring role and I don't know what that category of work is called. Support worker. Support worker. Yes. Yes. Fantastic. Okay. So not strictly a hardcore science person, but clearly someone who's able to work with people and understand how people work and make their lives enjoyable. Exactly. Yes. What have you been doing since you retired? Well, we've been in lockdown. I mean, my decision to retire was middle of last year because I wasn't working and I'm thinking, oh, might as well do it. So a lot of walking, cooking, and a bit of sewing, and looking after my granddaughter, of course. Yeah, so just basically just doing chores, gardening. We've got a big property, and gardening as well. But now that the lockdown's been lifted, I've gone back to the gym, and it's fantastic. Yes, that's another sort of interest, and you know, you get to talk to people and catch up with your friends, and uh, yeah, so. I'm pretty busy. I'm not missing work at all. That's really good to hear. I think this whole category of people whose lives were and and their identities were tied up in their jobs and when they retire, they get kind of lost. But it sounds like you're living a very wholesome life. I am. And I forgot one thing. I'm also learning to play the violin. So I practice a fair bit and have lessons. So that's um, a really good interest. That's a very cool thing to take up. I love it. Thank you. And I suspect we could probably sit here and hear a lot about your journey through life and you would have a lot to share, which would be amazing. But we also have Emily here. And in some ways, we're kind of here to chat about Emily. So I'm going to ask you what could be quite a tricky question. What does Emily do? Well, I know that she's working at the synchrotron. She got this awesome job that everybody tells me about and she's a beamline manager and I think the synchrotron, if I can understand it, the the beamline spins around very quickly and it separates the particles so you can 
diagnose or, or you know, you can find out the smallest articles in, in a product or whatever you're, you're looking at. So, yeah, I think it's a bit crude, but <laughs> it just breaks it down and extracts the minutest information about a particular mineral or, or something. That's pretty good. I'm impressed. Is that what you do? You you got the gist of it, I would say. <laughs> I think that was amazing. Can I, I virtual high five to Chris just then? Because I think if you stopped most people in the street and asked them to describe what a synchrotron was, you wouldn't get anything quite so, I guess, like accurate at the core. So well done. Thank you. Emily, how did your mum go just then? She did pretty well, I would say. I reckon she has a better understanding of the synchrotron than I did before I started there, so I reckon she's done pretty well. I'm a beamline scientist, not a beamline manager. I do not manage the beamline, but I do science on it. That does sound cool. It does sound cool. I think your mum promoted you. Yeah, I appreciate the promotion, but I'm not there yet. <laughs> uh, yeah, so a beamline, yeah, most people won't be familiar with that word. So what a beamline is, is it's a piece of equipment attached to the synchrotron and it focuses and tunes and shapes a beam of x-rays. And so we then use the x-rays to shoot at samples. So she definitely got that right. And we can tell things about their chemistry and their structure. That sounds very close to what your mum just said. Yeah. Yeah, she did pretty well, I would say. (laughs) Yeah. I'm curious, Chris, do you ever have to explain to other people what Emily does? No, (laughs) I don't. No, I'll just say she got this job at the synchrotron and she's a a line manager (laughs) and they think that's pretty cool. That's the end of it. You know, they don't ask me anymore and um, so I don't explain it. People don't ask anymore about the synchrotron? No, they're just probably not interested. No, no. (laughs) (laughs) This is the harsh truths. (laughs) Yeah, I guess that's reality, isn't it? People are like, oh, yep, she's got a cool title, she works at a cool place. And onto the more social things, I guess. Interesting. But I, I think also a lot of people won't know what a synchrotron is. Yeah, and I think a lot of people are sort of, they think, oh, yeah, that kind of sounds familiar to me. I've kind of heard the word. And so they feel like they can't ask any more questions because they feel like they're meant to know what that is. So it takes a certain level of confidence, I think, to be able to probe further. That's a really interesting insight because it it is a word. If you're driving around Clayton, which I think a lot of people in sort of southern Melbourne would do periodically, like it's a word you will see around and about the place and it's a fairly large facility but actually knowing what it does that's a fair a fair thing it it's sort of such a big thing it'd be like asking what horse racing is or something it's it's like you should kind of know that yeah absolutely but the reality is it's so complex and when people start working at the synchrotron at least in Australia we have no background knowledge in these things because we don't learn them in Australia and so it's a huge learning curve even for people who work at the Synchrotron, I'm definitely still learning. I only started working there in February. So I'm a novice at all things Synchrotron, I would say. (laughs) Can you tell us, Emily, a little bit about what you actually do day to day? What happens at the Synchrotron? 
Yeah, perhaps it's best if I start with what the synchrotron actually is and how it works. (laughs) That's even better. Let's start there. Okay. (laughs) So the synchrotron is, yeah, like like we were saying, it's a big building in the outer eastern suburbs of Melbourne and it's a big round building. It's about the size of a football field. It's pretty huge. And the synchrotron itself is inside that building and it's shaped like a donut. So sometimes we affectionately refer to it as a science donut. I actually like to think of it like a racetrack because like a racetrack, we have things zipping around in a big circle. But Unlike a racetrack, we don't have cars. We have a little tiny particles called electrons. So the electrons go around this racetrack or donut, whatever you want to call it. And when they get bent around a corner, they emit a light called synchrotron light. And so it's that synchrotron light that comes off the electrons that is then sent down the beam lines and that's what we use to shoot at the samples. Well, I was just going to point out that if it's a donut, it hasn't got any corners. It's round. Yeah, it's that is a very good point. Yep, around the forever corner. <laughs> I think there's something like oh, 18 or 28 magnets that are used to bend the electrons around that donut. And so, yeah, it's kind of like a 28-sided octagon but not oct (laughs) in in my head you've sort of like we like to think of it as this circle but I don't know that how many actual circles exist really if you get deep about it but it's sort of you're constantly this thing is trying to go straight this teeny tiny particle is like speeding along trying to go straight and you're constantly being like nope turn turn exactly yep but super fast. So I think it's like the electrons do a lap of the ring that they're in, the donut they're in, 1.4 million laps per second. So it's very zippy. How big's the ring, Em? Is it huge or is it, you know, I mean, just approximately? The diameter I reckon would be in the ballpark of maybe 20 or so metres. Okay. That sort of tells you that it's a big thing. Yeah. Yeah, it's not small. Yeah. No. I'm guessing you haven't had a chance to visit yet, Chris. Uh, we have. We they had open day years ago and we took our three children to open day. They ended up buying the Synchrotron T-shirt, <laughs> which uh, we've got a gorgeous photo. They were in the paper with their T-shirts on. Yeah, we just went to have a look and that's uh, quite a long time ago. I think M was maybe 12 or 13, you know, so. <laughs> Mum makes it sound like we were children. I was in second year university and I'm the youngest child in my family. No, you yeah. weren't. No, you weren't. It seems like you were only little. Yeah, no, so we, we did visit, but we just saw the, the equipment. We, you know, we didn't see anything working and we saw that they had a lot of displays like uh, microscopes and, and a lot of TV screens and things, you know, that you could look at, but no, you know, never saw anything working physically working so um but yeah it's it's a very big building and quite interesting actually but even though we went there i still didn't know what it did <laughs> so just but it, it's hard to imagine this thing spinning around and these little electrons coming off and then it's trying a, you can analyze you know the smallest particles and um, yeah it's it's quite amazing amazing 
and it's hard to get it through your brain that that's what happens so mm. it's also hard to visualize I guess because even when it is operating you can't physically see anything happening because it's all contained in machines and it's it's smaller than we can see anyway so unless you put in a bit of fluorescing paper into the line of the beam when it comes through the beam line you can't even see the the beam itself so very small and not that impressive to look at other than the machinery (laughs) so why is it called a beam because it's like a laser beam but made up of x-rays so it's literally like a a linear sort of thing you can shoot at stuff okay Emily, I'm thinking your mum deserves a proper private tour at some point when this is possible. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I can show her the ropes. She can be our next beamline scientist. <laughs> while, the, while the place is working, not when it's empty and not working. So this sounds like a fairly expensive piece of equipment for Australia to have. Why do we have it and what do we use it for? Yeah, so it is expensive and it is a government organisation. So it's government funded, but there are so many more benefits than there are costs. So we're enabling research in across all disciplines from environmental research to medical research to my field, which is geological research. And so it delivers benefits in terms of those research outcomes. So one example uh, that I can think of off the top of my head is that at one of our beamlines, they were able to use the beamline to look at the structure of when an immune cell meets a COVID cell. And then they were able to use that to figure out how the immune system responds to COVID, which is really important because it might change over time as COVID mutates. So some cool research goes on there and it's definitely valuable to the economy and I guess the health of of Australians and the world actually. Mm, Sounds great. That's such a tiny thing to be able to see. It's so small and I like I don't even honestly I don't know how they get so that particular beamline it diffracts from crystals and produces a diffraction pattern it's just like to me it just looks like a series of dots on a page but then they can use that pattern and calculate all of the things from that and it's just yeah it's it's extremely impressive that's very cool and very topical but obviously as a geologist it would be quite a stretch for you to be doing the covid related research what do you rocks are fairly big and quite sort of like solid and we can see them and the tool that you're using is for like looking at teeny 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 tiny things why would you need such like a delicate sort of like instrument to be able to see what's happening in the rock? Yeah, so even though rocks in when they're sitting in your hand or on the surface are big, they're still made of atoms and minerals and you know, it goes across all scales. So a lot of the processes that are key to geology actually happen on the element scale, so on the atom scale, which is what we can look at with the synchrotron. But there are also synchrotron techniques where you can make maps showing the chemical distribution of different elements, which is really useful for showing where different minerals are in the rock and then how the elements are distributed between them. And my beamline, which is still being built, will be able to tell the chemical speciation 
of different elements. Uh, so that can be really useful for things like, for example, sulfur. When we have sulfur in soils, if it's uh, not oxidized, so it's reduced, then it's safe in the soil. It's not going to cause harm to the environment or to people. But if that sulfur is oxidized, then it can be really damaging to the environment uh, and to people. So knowing the oxidation state of the sulfur, which is something we can figure out with the synchrotron, can be really important for that kind of environmental work too. Did you get all that, Chris? Oh, yes, I, I, I understand it. Um, yeah, I was actually, before Emily started explaining, I was going to say that, you know, with a rock, it's not just a, a solid object. It's made up of a whole lot of other things. And I think at the synchrotron, they're able to extract the smallest bits and then, you know, break them up and then find out what those bits are. Yeah, so, I, yeah, I understood that. I think it's just amazing, you know. I've got a, a new appreciation of rocks, I think, <laughs> because, they, you know, they're just not a, a solid mess on the ground. You know, they are actually made up of very, very tiny, minute particles that are all different. It does actually make sense when you think about it. It's just that as someone who's not a geologist, I don't tend to think about it. Yeah, of course. Why would you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So are there any particular questions that you're hoping to solve or answer using the new under-construction beamline? So my background is in geoscience, as I mentioned, and so my research involves looking at the way that metals are distributed in the Earth's crust, so up to 50 kilometres below our feet. And so the way that they these metals are transported in the crust is well, one way is in really hot fluids that travel in the pore spaces of rocks and on faults and things. And so these metals can be dissolved into these fluids, but the chemical form of the metal is really important for telling whether that will be dissolved into the fluid or not. So different metals need different conditions to be dissolved in the fluid. So the beamline will be great for looking at that because, again, it's about the chemical form of the element. And the reason this is important is because these metals are crucial for green technologies like solar panels and wind turbines and things like that. So if we can figure out how they're transported in the Earth's crust, then we can better target them to make sure that we have that supply, which presumably, hopefully, will keep growing in the future as we put in more solar panels and more wind turbines. Did you say 50 kilometres? Yeah, the Earth's crust, I mean, it can change in thick. It does change in, in thickness from not very much to up to maybe 70 kilometres. But, yeah, on average it's sort of 30 to 50, I guess. Mm, but how can you tell? I mean, that's a long way to go down. You know, how has anyone drilled that far? Or? No. Well, I think the deepest drill hole was uh, 12 kilometres. Well, you're telling fibs then? Because that's, you know, it's not proven. The way that we can look at it is that we can look at rocks that used to be at that depth or at the conditions that we see at that depth, so the same temperature or same pressure, which have now been lifted up and we see them at the surface. Or you can sometimes get chunks of that bit of the crust that are brought up to the surface from volcanoes uh, or you can use uh, other techniques like geophysics to image and figure out different things about 
those sorts of depths in the crust. But that's still guessing. <laughs> There's a great meme that says, geology is just liquor and guessing, and honestly, it's pretty accurate. <laughs> it's not proven. I mean, no, you know, no one's physically gone down. 50 kilometres or 70 kilometres and got little samples and then climbed back up. Even if you went down the volcano, you wouldn't make it back. So but I can understand, you know, rocks being at the surface that were below the surface a long time ago. I mean, we've walked in the Kimberley and you're in the middle of nowhere, red rocks everywhere, and you see little waves on the rocks. And that's where the sea used to be millions of years ago. So I can understand that, but how will they be able to tell where it came from, you know, what distance down below the earth without actually going diving in and (laughs) taking a look? Yeah, good question. So different minerals form at different temperatures and pressures. So if we have a look at the rock and have a look at what minerals are in there and what their chemistry is, then we can tell what temperature and pressure the rocks formed at. And you can also have a look at overprinting relationships, so relationships where minerals have formed after other minerals, so you can see their progression through the crust and and their different timelines. I forgot to mention before, there's also another thing that you can do, which I don't do but other people do, is you can replicate the conditions of the crust, so the temperature and pressure of the crust, in an experimental setting. So you can pop it in machines that heat up the rock to high temperature and high pressure, and then you can have a look at what happens to the rock once it comes out of that. Okay. It's amazing. It's pretty cool. Do we trust her yet, Chris? (laughs) (laughs) Or is she pulling our leg? Is it actually like, I don't know, 10 kilometres deep and they've been exaggerating for a little while? Yeah, I think that there's probably a lot of guessing going on there, but, you know, that's just... Take it at face value and, and just believe it. Thanks, Mum. <laughs> I like to think Emily's done her research. She looks like the kind of person who'd do her research. <laughs> just a few years. <laughs> so obviously the thing that stuck with Chris there was the depth of the crust. The thing that kind of, I don't know if it terrified me or just kind of blew my mind, that the metals are dissolving into fluids. So it's not that you've got metals melting, which is a fairly standard metal activity but they're dissolving into other things like sugar dissolves how do you get a metal to dissolve and yeah oh that's a good point it's really hard to picture isn't it yeah so what happens is that the fluid will sort of trickle through the rocks and when it reacts the rock it will leach certain things out of it So for example, chlorine, if chlorine is present in the fluid, then it likes to form complexes with certain metals and the metals like those complexes so much that instead of staying in its mineral where it started, it will go out into the fluid so that it can be with the chlorine. So yeah, it's like a big leech going along in the rock. (laughs) Is this something that only happens like under intense pressures or intense temperatures or... Like, is this specific to this particular scenario, the deep kind of stuff? No, we see it happening all throughout the crust and even at the surface as well. Uh, But different elements will dissolve under different conditions and will exolve under different conditions. So say something that might be like to be in the fluid at a really deep level 
once it gets to shallower in the crust, it might drop out of the fluid because it's no longer the right conditions for it to want to stay in there. And so that's where we get ore deposits forming, where those metals drop out of the fluid because of a change in conditions. So by, by fluid, you mean just your uh, ordinary runoffs, you know, like rivers and streams, and they contain different minerals. And is that what you mean? You can get different fluids. So like uh, when you have the bottom of the seafloor, you can get seawater going into the rocks underneath it through fractures in the rock and things like that. So that's one kind. When you heat up minerals that have water in their crystal structure, to change into a more thermodynamically stable mineral, it will let go of that water. And so that water will just be floating around in the rock. And so that's another way that you can make a fluid. Um, And then also you've got fluids when you've got magma in the crust. As the magma rises, it's got water in it and it gets to a certain point where it starts crystallizing and the water no longer wants to be in the magma. So it comes out of the magma to form its own fluid phase. So well, isn't magma hot, like lava, no? Yeah, yeah. So magma is what we call lava when it's below the surface. Oh, okay. And that's got fluid in it? Yeah, just dissolved into it. So if it's got lots of fluid in it when it hits the surface, surface it might be really explosive. And so that's where we see explosive volcanoes. Wow. We learn something every day. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like we went on a tangent there. (laughs) No, that's all geology. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. (laughs) We're here to have whatever chat happens. (laughs) I've never thought about magma having water in it. For some reason, it's always been this sort of like pure molten rock thing that's somehow wholesomely just rocky. And you think about... Obviously, this this is going to be a terrible analogy, but you think about adding water to oil and that kind of explosion. Like I'm assuming it's that similar like level of energy where something changes temperature or things just don't agree anymore, and it's just like a boom. And that's obviously how you get things flying everywhere and volcanoes. It's burning rock and exploding. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, I mean, I'm not a volcanologist and it's been a minute since I've done any volcanology, but from what I recall, when you have fluid in a high percentage of fluid in the magma, when it reaches the surface, you take off a lot of that pressure. And so the fluid can turn into vapor, gas. And so that gas escaping is the explosion. But I feel like you're going to get a lot of volcanologists writing into you, Amelia, and being like, that is horrifically wrong (laughs) and that is totally okay because then they can come on the show and we can talk about volcanology and it'll be great so yeah everyone likes volcanoes (laughs) and then you can be the third person then yeah (laughs) yeah it can be like a little chain where someone doesn't know about something and they can bring in someone yep and we can just sort of that's a lovely idea it is (laughs) (laughs) what is it that you want to know Okay, so we've covered a bit of ground now and hopefully everyone still remembers what the synchrotron is and what it does. So what do you actually do every day, Emily? Yes, okay. So at the moment we are building that beamline, so building the scientific equipment. So on a day-to-day basis at the moment, my job is to order in these parts that make up this scientific equipment from all around the world 
we now sort of have most of them on site and so we're putting them together but each part needs to be commissioned in a certain way so it needs to be connected to electrical and gas lines and it needs to be coded so that the information contained within that part can be uh, translated and made into something useful that we can understand and so we're doing all that commissioning at the moment and so that's going to take about another year it's a really long process and so the end game of that is to put all the equipment together so that we can get that x-ray beam through and get that information coming through and so after that year-ish, then we'll be having scientists come in from all around the world to use the beam line. And so my job changes then to training them to use uh, the beam line and to helping them to conduct their research with the beam line. And also uh, it's an opportunity for me to do my own research on the beam line as well and making sure it keeps running, maintenance and things like that. So you're going to be the expert on this particular beamline? My team and I, yeah. So I've been in a team of five people. So yeah, we'll be the experts, I guess. Awesome. It amazes me how long science takes. So long. And I'm kind of glad that it takes that long to build this machine so I can figure out how to use it because (laughs) my background certainly isn't in physics or engineering or any of these things that I need to know. So it's a big learning curve. I know, but it's a good challenge. I'm curious, Chris, what do you remember Emily wanting to do when she grew up? I don't think she had any ideas. I mean, when she was at college, she did do psychology and then she went to university and did that as well. And then she got interested in geology. So I think when she finished year 12, I don't think she had any idea that she would be doing what she's doing today or that she would be, you know, a geoscientist. So it's just amazing how, you know, as you go through, you know, with your education, you might start at point A, but you end up at point Z, you know, it's just your life and, you you know, your ideas change and your interests change. And sort of as a final point, you find out that, oh, yes, this is really exciting. I think I want to know more about it. So I think that's what's happened to him. And yeah, she just got really interested in rocks (laughs) and it just grew from there. And she's had a few jobs, which, you know, she sort of climbed up the ladder and, you know, she's just doing really well. So, you know, I think, you know, if, if you're studying or you're at school and you have no idea what you want to do with the rest of your life, you just don't worry about it. Just keep going because the rest of your life will find you. And, you know, and even if you don't do well in your studies, something, you know, life will start shining and you think, oh, yeah, I don't mind that. Or you might try different things and nothing, you know, you sort of feel worthless. But just keep going. Just keep trying. And you find your niche and, yeah, just enjoy it. That was possibly the most beautiful career advice we've had on the show. I love that. The rest of your life will find you. I'm curious, Emily, how would you tell your career story? Honestly, it's pretty spot on. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm glad that it's aligned. That's always good. Yeah. <laughs> I don't remember having any serious career aspirations, you know, clear aspirations when I was at high school or even at uni. I remember once saying to my dad that I wanted to be a spy at ASIO, but obviously the patriarchy had got to me already before then because the way that I was going to become a spy is by being the secretary on the front desk and baddies were going to come in and I was going to be a spy somehow, beat them up or something. And that's how I was going to become a spy. I was going to get promoted. 
there is so much in that we might um yeah we'll keep moving but uh yep but yeah when I did I started uni and did a bachelor of science because I quite liked science at high school I wouldn't say I loved it at high school but I you know it was the thing that I hated the least I would say and so I did geology as a an elective in first year and I just, yeah, I really loved it. And so I kept going. And at the end of the degree, I didn't feel like I knew enough to get a job. And so I did honours and then after honours, still didn't feel like I knew enough. So I did a PhD and then after the PhD, I was done. But still, even after finishing my PhD, I didn't know what I wanted to do for a job. But a, an internship in science policy was advertised in my university school. And so I applied for that and I didn't know what science policy was. I got an interview and before the interview, I literally popped into Google, what is science policy? (laughs) I got a job (laughs) 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 and I worked in science policy for just over three years, I think. And that was really great. And I liked it because it was really big picture thinking, which was refreshing after my PhD, which was very niche. But I really missed being in science and doing the science and doing geology. And so after that, I got a postdoctoral position at the Geological Survey of Western Australia. And so that was great being back in research. But it was uh, 2020. And so it was in WA and my family and my partner were all in Melbourne. So I only lasted there a year with the border restrictions and things and not seeing my family and partner for 10 months. And then I was looking for jobs back in Melbourne and this great opportunity at the Synchrotron popped up. So I applied. And as mum mentioned before, I'd been a Synchrotron fangirl from way back when we went on the uh, open day tour. So yeah, it was an exciting opportunity that that I just went for. And she got the job. And I got the job. (laughs) But I definitely read that. The bit that mum was saying about just try things until you find something you like, that is how I've operated my entire career. So yeah, that would definitely be my career advice too. Just if you don't know what you want to do, just try a bunch of things until you figure it out. Are you glad she came back home, Chris? Oh, yes. (laughs) Although this last eight months, she might as well have been in WA. Now we didn't see any of the kids. Although, no, that's wrong because we saw our granddaughter. I was looking after her. But, yeah, no, it's so we had a family get-together a week ago just after the lockdown finished. But it's good. I mean, she's good to have her, you know, close by and happy. We actually planned to go up to WA and Em got a a two-bedroom apartment for that. (laughs) No one ever went up because of the lockdown. You know, it just happened very quickly and, yeah. So we didn't even, we only saw it when she took us with her laptop, show us around the place with all the boxes and everything. And yeah, you know, we never got there. I think that's something that we kind of, well, we have to gloss over in our CVs and sort of in job interviews and stuff. But often we do make career decisions because of family and because of other commitments. And I think that's just as valid a reason to choose a job is because it's near family and you can be like, you're not alone, that sort of stuff. So. Chris, how do you remember Emily's PhD? I don't. It took a long time. Emily's, um, well, as you can tell, you know, she's pretty smart and she just gets down and gets to it and does the job. You know, she did tell us or she told me that she quite enjoys writing as opposed to her father that stresses. With, he's a doctor as well. And she quite, you know, she will sit down and, um, well, she said she just sat down and wrote her thesis and, you know, there was no problem and stuff. No, I think she just sailed through it and she's, um, yeah, I'm very proud of her. 
Yeah, very painless, unlike her dad, with very been a very painful journey there. Is that how you experienced it, Emily? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> or do we not want to ruin the bubble because like currently the perfect PhD student ever? Oh gosh, no, I think I owe it to PhD students to tell the truth here. I think it, you know, it's really up and down and I don't think I'm any smarter than any other person on the street. It's just for a PhD, it's like 10% smart and 90% determination and stubbornness. And I'm pretty stubborn, but it's definitely, I think you sort of, there are ups and downs and yeah, and I definitely had both. Like I loved bits of it and other bits were really hard when you're trying to solve a puzzle that seems unsolvable. But yeah, mum's right. I did really enjoy the writing. It's something that comes naturally to me and people get really annoyed when I tell them that when they're also PhD students because a lot of people struggle to get something on the page, I know, but they, I'm sure they have other strengths that I don't have that made it easier for them as well. Is there anything in particular that you're proud of Emily for, Chris? I think, you know, Emily's done really well. She's ended up with a perfect job, you know, she's really successful and she's happy and, uh, you know, it's been a journey and she's worked hard, but, you know, she came forth and I don't say, I can't say she struggled, but <laughs> I suppose she struggled when she was in WA, but no, she worked hard and she deserves a, a good job. So I think, you know, if you work hard and with a bit of luck, anyone can have that perfect job. So yeah, you know, I'm really proud of her. Thanks, mom. You're welcome. <laughs> but I think Emily's recently done something that we can all be proud of her for. Would you like to share something, Emily? What did you do? <laughs> I don't know if you know this, mom. I launched a website, I think it was last week or maybe the week before. Yeah, I know. Last week. Oh, you do know. It's a website called People of Earth Science and it is highlighting diverse careers for people with earth science degrees and showcasing the amazing people working in those careers. Uh, so the reason that I decided to start this website was because, as I said before, when I was doing my PhD, I really didn't know what to do. But I thought that my only two career options were academia, so becoming a professor eventually, or going into the mining industry. And neither really appealed to me. And I didn't end up working in either. And I've since learned that there are so many different career options for earth scientists. So I just wanted to share those with the next generation of earth scientists, I guess. Yes, saw that last week. You did well. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> it's very cool and it's an awesome resource. If you're at all interested in earth sciences, you should check it out and we'll include a link in the show notes, obviously, because that is a lot of work to pull that together. Thanks. Yeah, it is a lot of work, but it's something that I really believe in. And it's good to give a platform to these people who are doing awesome things. Yeah. And it's also made my life quite easy because if I want to find some people in earth sciences doing something interesting, I can be like, oh, they're all collected in one place. I built it for you, Amelia. <laughs> I knew it. That's how you know you've got influence. Chris, have you got, you've obviously shared some wonderful advice already, but is there any other advice that you'd like to give to any young people or people who are just sort of like at that questioning phase of their lives? Well, I think it's very important to uh, complete your education. You know, you know, the world's so big and there's just so much that you can achieve, but you can't do it if you're not educated. So you know, try and uh, finish your education and then, you know, just plod along till you find what, you know, what you're really interested in. And even if you're interested in something and it doesn't work out, that doesn't mean that it's the end, of, you know, of your life or anything, you know. You just try something else and it's a journey, you know, and what you start doing when you're, let's say, 18, 20, 
you'd probably be doing something entirely different when you're 50 or 60 or whatever. So yeah, just keep at it and enjoy life. I think that's lovely. And especially with the world changing so quickly, the idea that what you're doing or what you think you want to do when you're 18 will look even vaguely somewhere in five or 10 years. It's just the world's going to change too much between then. You'll have to adapt. But I think also, you know, a lot of the young kids, and especially this year and the last year doing year 12, you know, they're despairing, oh, my score's so low, I can't get into anything. It doesn't matter. It's, you know, your life isn't about a score. It's, it's about, you know, just being happy. And, you know, if you can't get into a certain course that you really had your heart set on, you can get into something different somewhere else. You know, you don't need to get 99.99% to be a doctor or whatever. You know, you can try something else. There are always other options if you don't do well. But don't just give up and go and work in the shop behind the counter or go and make coffee. You know, it's it's not. No, don't give me that face, Emily. (laughs) Well, those are also valid careers if that's what you choose to do. (laughs) I know, that's true. You have to train for those. But, you know, you can't just step into a a job without training. But, you know, there's more out there. Even if you feel, you know, you haven't done well, you know, you you can do really well if you set your heart on something and keep trying. And there's always an alternate path. That's right. Emily, what about you? Some advice from you? I guess mine's pretty similar to mum's in that it's really just, you know, I'm doing this website. I've found out that I am certainly not alone in doing my career the way that I've done it, I guess, which is to not know what I've been doing at any stage and not have any plans or goals. (laughs) And apparently that's very common based on the scientists that I've been profiling. And so, yeah, my advice would just be to, if you don't know what you want to do, it's okay. And that you can just try things and just try things that you're interested in. Yeah. If you just do something because you're interested in it and doesn't turn into anything, that's fine. At least you've got some new knowledge, but you know, maybe it'll lead to a job that you love. Who knows? Couldn't agree with all of that more. And just to start wrapping up, is there anything that you wanted to say that you haven't had a chance to yet? Starting with Chris. No, I'm just really proud Em's achieved and she's pretty level-headed and she's doing really well in her career and her life and, yeah, I'm just a happy mum. That's awesome. Is there anything we haven't touched on that you wanted to squeeze in here, Emily? I just thought I'd mention because mum alluded it a bit before. My dad, he worked as an engineer his whole life in the job that he, for the large part, didn't enjoy. And when he retired, he decided to do a master's degree in uh, Kimberley Rock Art, which he fell in love with after doing some bushwalks. And so he did that and then he did a PhD in figuring out how old the Kimberley Rock Art was because he was interested in how old it was. And now he's just finished that last year. Now he's doing a postdoc. So definitely it's never too old to follow what you love doing and to start a new career. So your dad did a PhD after you? He did, yeah. So my sister and I finished our PhDs maybe five years ago and Dad finished last year and they're all in geoscience. (laughs) I hope you don't feel too left out at the dinner table, Chris. (laughs) Well, not really, no. I have to serve the dinner. (laughs) No, we share that, although yeah, you do do the bulk of it. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's all good. Yeah, I'm very proud of the three of them. Poor mum's got rocks coming at her from everywhere. (laughs) Yes, yeah. I'm very happy for my family. We just have to get Tommy to join in and do some sort of a a rocky science. I don't think, no, he doesn't need to do that. (laughs) No, it's all good. That's an epic story. 
I high five to your dad. That's cool. It's pretty impressive. Whenever I think that I'm too old to start something, like I took up rollerblading this year, I just think of my dad and I'm like, well, if he can take up a PhD in, you know, his late 60s, then uh, I can take up roller skating in my 30s. <laughs> I think that's just belongs on a quote somewhere. Inspirational poster of the year. And do you know, I've just, since we're talking about my husband, when he was doing his master's, he was told when he got his results that he was one of the highest marked students that they've had at ANU in Canberra. And he was, how old was he then? Early to mid-60s. Maybe 58. Well, it's a long time ago. It's taking him a long time to do a PhD. <laughs> or maybe he was just 60 because it took him about 18 months to do that. And then he applied to do a PhD at Melbourne Uni. Yeah, so he's done really well. He's a smart cookie. But in some ways, he's also got the benefit of like years of accumulated wisdom and knowledge and not having some of the distractions of being a young person at university and not necessarily always making wise decisions. Yeah, and I, that's something I've really noticed because his scientific method is so thorough and, and impressive. Like if I had have conducted my experiments, I guess, the way that he did, I my thesis would have been so much better. <laughs> So it's very impressive to see just how thorough he is. And yeah, I do think that that's probably because of his experience and his career. I think it helps. But I think he does a lot of research too. You know, he spends a lot of time on researching. You should see our bookshelf. We've got so many books on rock art just and he keeps on researching and, he, you know, he keeps on working at it. So it's great. That's such a wonderful story. To wrap up, though, now that we've like, of course, we've waited to the last five minutes to hit a highlight, obviously, can I get you to share a shout out? So a virtual high five that all the people listening should give virtual high fives to someone or an organization you think is doing amazingly. So starting with Emily. I have a, a couple <laughs> that I'm prepared. Um, so the first two are, are geology related and they're just some social media things that I've seen that are really cool. So one is someone called Martin Newen and he has an Instagram page called Rocks and Pies because he likes rocks and he also likes pies. And he shares videos. He goes in on field trips on the weekend and shares videos of the cool things that he sees in the rocks and sort of teaches you on a really basic, well, not basic, a simple level, what, what he's seeing so anyone could understand it. And I love it. And he posts photos of rocks, pretty rocks as well that he comes across. So that's my number one. My second one I came across is related to my website and it is at a Twitter page called The Geochemistry Group. And I guess they exist beyond Twitter too, because they're running a panel series that is highlighting people who have gone on to work in diverse careers after doing a PhD in geochemistry, which is a pretty niche field. And then they've expanded out into these sort of broader careers. So I love that. So they're the geochemistry group on Twitter. And then just, I've recently joined TikTok and I've been getting into some TikToks and the accounts that I love are Kylie Stones. She makes these amazing TikToks just sort of in her backyard because she looks at urban nature and conservation and they're just so cool. She's much cooler than I am and it just comes very naturally to her and I love watching her content. And then of course, Kirsten Banks, who makes really great space TikToks. She's an astrophysicist and she's a TikTok pro. I knew about some of them. I did not know about all of them. They sound like very cool people and not just worthy of a high five, but also possibly worthy of a follow. Yes, absolutely. Chris, have you got a shout out for us? Oh, not really. There's only one. I've recently joined a group on Facebook page 
I've done really follow Facebook much, but I, you know, I've got all the different groups, so I just have a look. But this is hiking in Australia and New Zealand, and it's amazing. It is absolutely, you get so many good tips. And also walking in the Dandenongs is another one. So it's just human interest because we like bushwalking and walking, and it's nice to learn about different equipment that you never knew about that you can um, obtain. And, yeah, that's probably about it. High five to Emily and Amelia as well. Two high fives. <laughs> that Facebook group sounds amazing. I'm going to follow them. Yeah. Thank you so much. And again, clearly the hiking has then inspired a whole PhD for your husband. And it's a whole world of you never know what you're going to stumble across as you walk out your front door. Thank you both so much for coming on the show. This has been absolutely delightful. I hope the listeners have enjoyed this as much as I have, and I hope both of you two have too. So thank you so much for coming. Thank you, Amelia. Thank you. It's been really fun. Thanks. Thanks so much for listening. If you like this podcast, you're an absolute gem of a human being and you should head over to avidresearch.com.au, sign up for our amazing email newsletter and get all the download on the upcoming episodes and maybe even get a bit of a sneak peek about what's coming next. If you've been enjoying this podcast, you should definitely subscribe. We're on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, and even Google these days. Thanks.